bad weather can also contribute to this as well with a lot of clustered rigs in very close proximity can also cause misidentification. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, welcome back. This is episode 98. Wherever in the world you are listening, this is another chance for us to dive in and find out a little bit more about the helicopter industry and some of the different operations that are out there. The oil and gas industry has been a big driver of the helicopter industry for the last few decades. As that particular market has periodically peaked and dropped, we've seen that mirrored to a degree in the demand for helicopter aircrew and the investment in large new helicopter types. The offshore part of our industry has certainly had its challenges with mergers and Chapter 11 bankruptcy filings recently, along with its associated layoffs and wage renegotiations. We haven't covered a lot of offshore oil and gas operations on the podcast as yet. One of the fascinating things about flying helicopters is just how different the roles are out there that build on that same basic flying skill set. Whether it's power line work, film flying, mustering, or operating to oil rigs, these are just such completely different jobs, even though we're using the same effectively, the, the same control mix of cyclic, collective, and pedals. Today, we get to, to look at just one small aspect of offshore flying and some of the technology that's been developed to support offshore operations. We're going to cover wrong deck landings, refresh ourselves on ADSB operation and look at a landing approach surveillance and warning system. Our guest is John Davis, Managing Director and CEO of Skynet Satellite Communications and their subdivision Skynet Aviation. This is a technology slash software company that has been supporting aviation ops for over 20 years, including experience where they were heavily involved in helicopter operations in the Gulf of Mexico. These days, John is based in Brisbane, here in Australia, and the company website says they are supporting aviation operators in over 47 countries. Let's get into it, and we'll find out a little bit more about one of the unique challenges facing offshore crews, and it's one that I hadn't really given much thought to before. John, in one of your emails to me, you spoke about the Gulf of Mexico operations there in the, the heyday of oil and gas, you're talking about you know eight thousand platforms and six hundred helicopters, and that's you know that's just a, a massive operation. So I was keen to get you to talk a little bit about that initially. Yeah, sure, Mick. We were involved with helicopter operations out to most of those platforms. There basically were three major operators in the Gulf of Mexico back in uh, I think it was 2007. We first got involved with that. So there was ERA. PHI and Bristow were probably the main players with that sort of group of helicopters. And so we were providing helicopter tracking services um, right throughout the Gulf for quite a few years. The major issue that always seemed to come up was the um, density of rigs 
obviously clustering of rigs very close together, presented an issue with wrong deck landings. And so after we finished that contract uh, in that region and obviously a number of years have, have passed and ADSB technology has grown, it's really opened the door to be able to provide a unique system where we're able to monitor large amounts of air traffic in condensed environments to be able to understand whether the trajectory that aircraft are flying actually heading to the right place or not. So that's really where it started off. And then we looked at the data in terms of analytics from FAA and other sources to see how often wrong deck landings were occurring. And it's still to this day very spartan on exactly how much um, or quantum of, of uh, wrong deck landings occur. But it is substantial. And the obviously safety implications for that are, are quite enormous. And so realistically, until now, there's never been a technology system that's capable of detecting and providing a warning system for those types of events. Well, we're going to spend most of this interview talking about the wrong deck landings and exactly what the diff, you know, what what they are, and and some of the the, uh, I guess the the dangers there. Um, and, and again, initially, you know, I didn't think it was such a, a thing, but when you start to dig in with your operations and you know, think about when they they're letting off the, the gas flares, you start to realise, okay, it's a bit of a danger there. But a lot of people listening aren't going to be that familiar with uh, all rig setups, and and I guess as we expand on this, it's probably just not all rigs. But talking about the, the golf there, you know, how, how far offshore are these rigs? How far apart are they? And, and I guess I've got an impression from movies too of, of a static rig where it's just, you know, sitting there. But some of these things are, are movable. And I guess when we get into the wrong deck landings, one of the, the causal factors is these things sometimes move without uh, notification back to the helicopter operators. So can you just describe what it looks like when you launch offshore from the Gulf of Mexico? You know, how far is it? How many rigs, like how close are they? What's, what do you see when you're flying out there? The distances out uh, from offshore, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, is really quite extreme. I mean, there's close-in structures as well as deep water uh, rigs, which can extend you know, well over 100 nautical miles offshore. The different type of aircraft obviously utilised for depending on number of passengers and the distance offshore. And so the deep water environment, which is probably the main consideration, use aircraft like S-92 or the S-76, of course, to um, carry you know, reasonable payload over that distance and also considering fuel considerations and refuelling on, on platforms. So Platforms obviously fall into a few different categories of uh, fixed installations which are semi-permanent, whether they're in production or whether they're surveying the, the area. Jack-up rigs, obviously, as you mentioned, are movable and they might spend some period of time doing drilling operations and then move to an, another location. There are obviously two different major types and also there's a, a third uh, potential as well, and that's the FPSO, the floating production services as well, which is particularly difficult for, uh, I suppose, detection from our perspective because it's actually a tethered ship, which is a floating facility which basically takes all the uh, umbilical cords from the undersea area and, and brings it on board the ship for then offloading onto another large ship at periodic times. That chip uh, is tethered uh, on the bow, and so it can 
rotate uh, 360 degrees. And if that ship's, say, 150 metres long or more, um, that's a fairly big arc of uh, rotation. So for operations going out to anything that's swinging around, they've obviously got to orientate themselves to understand where the platform is and also what angles they're allowed to approach that platform as well. Because probably not a lot of people understand that every landing pad has a approach zone and a lot of other safety uh, elements that go with that and they're regularly surveyed to ensure they don't have obstructions and other things in the way of those approach zones. So knowing how to orientate the aircraft before the approach is also pretty vital and so that changes considerably if your platform is uh, able to move or if it's a fixed environment that makes it a lot easier with standard approach profiles and so forth. So that's really the, the, the main elements that I think are problematic in solving a lot of these wrong deck landings. And the distance between these rigs can be as small as half a mile. So we're dealing with very close in contact between different style of rigs as well. Before we spend a bit more time, and I'll pull up a couple of safety reports there that talk about the rounding landings and some of the causes, can we just cover, I guess, backtrack a little bit on some of the technology that we'll be talking later on, which will, I guess, feed into this approach um, warning system that we've been talking about. ADSB, can you just give a, a high-level overview of uh, what that is, and I guess we'll compare it to, you know, say, a normal transponder operation? Sure. So for, for the uninitiated, ADSB has a, a disastrous acronym called Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. I couldn't have thought of a worse name. So using the word ADSB is obviously a lot easier. Effectively, an ADSB um, transponder and receiver is the basis for the latest generation of air traffic control and separation per, uh, services that we see around the world. And so that's been gradually deployed over the last few years and it's now mandated in uh, most countries as the requirement to be able to enter air traffic uh, environments. So there's a number of different varieties of ADSB for the US and other regions, but ostensibly it's 1090 megahertz is generally the global standard for that transmission. So most of the larger aircraft that are mandated for fitting of ADSB will have an ADSB out transponder which can work in combination with uh, the standard transponders that you already would have been used to. And the transponder generally is sending out a position, GPS position report twice every second from the aircraft. So from the ground station or receiver end, it's really a fairly basic uh, receiver device that is capable of intercepting and receiving that signal and then decoding it and backhauling it to a database um, that, that is connected to that ADSB receiver. The main benefits on ADSB is also the range. Given aircraft um, VHF systems look at about probably 100, 130 miles uh, at sea level, ADSB also has uh, in the 1090 megahertz range is line of sight. But it has a fairly significant power output, so it is actually able to be received over a fairly long range. So generally an optimal receiver will be looking at around about 260 nautical miles as a maximum range and with uh, some altitude. 
and closer in, obviously, that reduces as the altitude descends. And so the ADS-B system that we use is really to, to gain the GPS data from the aircraft, and then that way we can plot those positions in a mapping environment. The LASSO uh, product, which is our landing surveillance product, which is designed to have outputs on that receiver as well, to be able to trigger warning systems such as sirens, bird scarers, even be able to um, activate firefighting standby equipment and so forth for unmanned rigs and that sort of thing. That's probably more discussion. Okay, so I guess uh, the ground station then for ADSB is purely passive. It's just re just receive only. And then the aircraft are, as you said, every two seconds, or sorry, twice a second pumping out the GPS as they're flying along and whatever ground stations are in range and then uh, taking that, that uh, signal in. That's correct. Do any satellites pick up that signal? Yes, well, we've got space-based ADS-B, which uh, Arian has implemented over the last couple of years. And space-based ADS-B is, is basically ADS-B transponders fitted to the Iridium satellite network. So there are 66 or more low Earth orbiting satellites or LEO satellites that have the ability to be able to also receive the ADS-B transmissions from the aircraft. They then will, will download that uh, via the satellite network into a platform that can be used to display that air traffic data. And so that's now being widely used as well. The, the main thing I see the difference with the terrestrial services versus the space-based services is that terrestrial services can update much faster at uh, one second intervals versus the space-based information. It's purely just a data and speed process in terms of you have milliseconds of delay for the transmission via satellite, whereas the terrestrial service is, is virtually in real time. Here in Australia, and, and probably similar in, in other countries then, the, the publicly available ones, so that the ones that are feeding data into air traffic services, they're essentially operated by government or operated by Air Services Australia? Yes, there's, there's several different types of available systems that we see uh, globally, and you know, most people will be quite aware of the free services, uh, which are you know, FlightAware or FlightRadar24, and they're public, uh, publicly available. Some of that data is uh, screened so that certain aircraft can be um, made invisible so that they're not shown on a public environment. The other point that's really, I suppose, very important here is any of the the free services basically is a contributor-based um, uh, service. So in other words, Flight Radar or, or uh, Flight Aware would be receiving data from contributors, uh, a free contribution service, and for getting free access to the service as well. And so they really don't have any ownership of the data nor any control over the quality of service that they're getting. And that's really a fundamental difference between the Skynet commercial ADSB or LASOR service is that we're managing the service from end to end. And for our customers, it's unfiltered information. So we're showing you all aircraft that we're receiving data for for that particular location. And we're also looking at the signal and the health of the site at all times. So we're understanding exactly what the um, 
the ADSB or the, the LASSOR service is um, online and receiving information correctly. So the use case there, if we're picturing you know, flying from Sydney to Darwin, at some point there's going to be holes in that ground ADSB coverage on the way. And I guess when we jump back into all rigs, there's not necessarily airfields out there with um, ADSB units sitting out there. And so if they want coverage, they've then got to go put their own unit. Um, yeah, that's mainly correct. We do have a lot of overlapping coverage from aggregated services, other commercial services that we also ingest into our system. But if you're really looking for a dedicated service that you want to have up to 260 nautical miles uh, visibility, you really need to be looking at uh, a LASSOR or an ADSV Skynet commercial service to give you that dedicated environment and also quality of service to know that it's going to be operating when you get there is also another important fact as well. Okay, so that provides the local coverage and we're getting the data then from the aircraft in and then we're going to manipulate that yep. data with the approach system and do things with it. So I guess it's just a, the flow of, of where the data is coming from and, and how it's, it's getting uh, captured. If, Absolutely. If we talk back then on the uh, the wrong deck landings, yeah, I've, I've got a couple of figures in some of those reports that I had, but let's if we talk about, yeah, just, just some of the numbers around it uh, that you've got and some of the background on why it happens and, and some of the history on the long deck landings. And I guess just explaining what it is, I guess the name's reasonably self-explanatory, but until I started reading all these things, I didn't really, you know, jig it to me. I guess it's actually, you know, a reasonably serious problem. Uh, so can you just give us more background on, on what that actually is, the, the wrong deck landing? Well, wrong deck landing really stems from, um, obviously, a, a flight's been programmed to fly out to a particular destination and then that destination is either misidentified or the rig has moved or some other element has caused that rig to be misidentified. Lack of um, bad weather can also contribute to this as well with a lot of clustered rigs in very close proximity can also cause misidentification of, of the platforms as well. So the wrong deck landing scenario has been around for many, many years and a number of people that we've spoken to have really said that being able to identify wrong deck landings before they happen is really the holy grail of, of offshore operations because there is so much um, activity going on offshore that this is really a, a major problem. And I think um, CASA in the UK, or correction, CAA in the UK, have, uh, have really identified this as a major issue for operations in the North Sea because it has happened reasonably regularly. And the major problem with the wrong deck landing is the, the deck might be fouled. It could have um, equipment or personnel or other things on the deck prior to landing that they're not expecting that aircraft to be there. The other thing is the specification for that landing approach will be completely different. So therefore, if they understand the approach angle for that particular helideck, uh, for the one that they think they're going to, the one that they're actually landing on could have a completely different configuration. So therefore, it would be highly dangerous in and around jibs and other uh, structures on the rig to misidentify because the whole angle of approach will be wrong. Some of the, again, there's two reports that I, I kind of pulled that gave me most of the background for when I was trying to read up on this. 
Uh, one's a 2001 report. It was looking in the uh, the 90s in the in the UK. So I guess the the uh, North Sea area. And it's just I find this whole thing super interesting from a human factors point of view. One on the reporting, but then just all the things that go into it. So there was you know, again this first report from two thousand and one. So there was eighteen long deck landings reported in that period from eighty nine to, to ninety eight. But it talks about the fact that the number of reported wrong deck landings versus the number of actual is <laughs> going to be quite a big delta there because again you know it's a bit of yeah. embarrassment type thing and, and I guess there's probably less oversight or supervision um, maybe there uh, and the next report talks about you know number of, of near miss landings which we'll go into and it's interesting seeing that the change in the reports from 2001 where you know there's a bit of pilot embarrassment and uh, I guess a focus on airmanship and penalties to the pilot for, for wrong deck landings and the later report goes into more of a systematic sort of analysis but uh, again when you first hear of it it's kind of like well, how do you how do you land on the wrong wrong deck when you look at some of these demo photos, uh, the the name of these rigs is not necessarily massive, and it's sometimes located on the rig a long way from the actual landing deck. In this first report, they're saying you know fifty percent of the pilot's attention on the on the final landing stage is spent in actually identifying that they're landing on the correct deck, and talking about the amount of attention that it takes the crew to identify that they're actually landing in the right place, as opposed to actually trying to fly the approach and, and look out for obstacles. Uh, so I found that fascinating. Absolutely. And I think if you throw in bad weather in that environment, I mean, a lot of these places are offshore and so they're subject to maritime weather, which can be you know, very low and, and, and very um, uh, encompassing on large areas. And so the flight to the rig could also be in IMC conditions or could be uh, very low visibility requiring a lot of concentration. So by the time the aircraft arrives at the rig, might be some hour or, or more later, their uh, level of concentration has to be very high to be able to ensure that they're, they're landing on the right rig. The other, the other aspect of wrong deck landing is the abort too. So that it depends on how close the approach becomes before they misidentify the, the rig and what the abort procedure is could be completely in the opposite direction to the one that they're actually going to. So the, the the risk for even a mid-air collision with some structure of the oil rig is, is, is present. And uh, you know it just heightens the danger overall to have a late abort from a mislanding as well. So I've, I've spoken to several operators that have talked about a helicopter that's misidentified the, the landing zone, landed and then taken off again. Without, without communicating to anybody. So, you know, again, that's caused by level of embarrassment, uh, level of, well, I'm not at the right place, or it could also be fuel consideration that I need to get to where I've got to go, which I've now re-identified. But if I don't leave straight away, I won't have sufficient fuel and I'll be on reserves. So there's a lot of things that I would suggest are going through the pilot's mind when this is happening. There's one snippet here from from the 2016 report. It's um, a couple of CHC and Heli Offshore, a couple of groups basically joined to, to put this together. So I'll just I'll read that snippet that I've got, uh, and then we'll move on to sure. I guess some of the solutions and, and what the system does. But uh, again, it's an 81 page report, and it goes in super detail about some of the, the causal factors. There's one section there where they've done a survey, as uh, a combination of interview surveys and, and written surveys. This particular survey group, there was 98 people involved, 
and 51 of the 98 are reported having a, a near wrong deck uh, landing sort of situation. Reading straight from it, only a very small number of pilots believe that wrong deck landings are inevitable because they are caused entirely by the system in which they work and can't be trained against. So there's people out there saying, hey, look, this is just an inherent yeah. thing that just happens in this world. At the other end of the spectrum, a larger group believe that wrong deck landings are a result of poor pilot performance to which they themselves are not subject. <laughs> so there's a, a group of people who, who had never had a wrong deck landing and I guess not surprisingly when they contributed uh, causal factors, it was uh, you know, a, a human error issue that other pilots yep. had that, that they didn't have. And then you know, both groups may be difficult to obtain buy-in in terms of training procedures for defence against wrong deck landings. And the last section there is, however, that the majority of pilots appear to believe that wrong deck landings are caused by a mixture of human and system factors and show they feel vulnerable to having one using statements such as, I haven't had one yet. And the report is fascinating. It's got some beautiful graphs about the switchover from basically flying on you know, GPS or a flight data system and then changing to the, the visual flight mode for approach. It's a yeah, really, really good report. And if, if anyone's doing human factors at uni or you're, you're studying it or anything, it's, it's just fantastic bits and pieces all the way through there. You can do a heap of human factor studies on that report. It's, it's great. So, yeah, after this, I might read out a couple more things and what they had in terms of uh, causal factors. Sure. But uh, yeah, John, what's you know one of the systems they talk about is is technical solutions. So do you want to go into a bit more depth about um, how the system feeds data in and, and what it does with it? Sure. Um, well, as I mentioned earlier too, is that the Lasso system is a ground-based service, and it's really up to the procedures on the rig whether there's a radio operator that can alert the flight crew that they're approaching the wrong rig as well. So we don't have an indication in the cockpit as such. This is really designed to provide early notification, uh, depending on how many rigs are clustered around in that particular area and what the normal approaching uh, vectors are for that. Yeah, so we're looking at the approach paths that are the normal approach paths for a normal, normal arrival. And we're also looking at extraneous approaches from other areas as well. So. We capture all approaches, it's just the time frame between when the first uh, intercept is identified as being an approach environment. And so the aircraft also must be what we call in the landing configuration. So uh, it's not that we're looking for the wheels down and that sort of thing. We're looking more for the performance characteristics of the arrival and the descent rate and those sorts of things to understand whether it's a potential aircraft that's coming to land. So our system on board, the receiver, is always looking out to 260 nautical miles and it's analysing every single aircraft in that period, every second, to sort of see whether it conforms to an approach profile or not. And once um, it identifies an aircraft that's entered a zone that's been pre-configured, as a long-range uh, inbound approach path, which might be the normal approach path, we can then provide triggers in our system to alert console operator to say that an aircraft is in the normal configuration, in the normal approach mode from a particular path. And that could be an instrument approach environment, could be just the normal entry point from the... Um, departing airdrome from the mainland, that sort of thing, or from a different rig. 
We also then uh, look at all the unusual approaches as well, could be from you know, out at sea directly to the, to the rig. For whatever reason, an aircraft has approached the rig from a, from a foreign angle that it's not used to, and we can provide zones that will trigger probably a little bit shorter time frame. And we can also provide no-fly zone environments as well. So we can set up areas which might be behind, say, where they do a gas blow-off and that's ignited. They might want to say, we want a no-fly zone up to 3,000 feet and a radius of, uh, of whatever. And we can set that in the system too. So we can identify all the penetrations in all these zones and there's quite a significant reporting capability that will provide us with the time that any of these penetrations occurred and who, what aircraft it is and who the operator is. And that's all contained in detailed uh, analysis inside the system as well. Because not only just capturing the events that occur, it's also important to understand who's been to the structure and how long were they there for. Because if you are an operator and you've got a platform that's capable of only handling one aircraft at a time and you've got another one on route, you'd probably want to know when the other aircraft has left. And it might not be your own company aircraft, it might be somebody else's, which you won't have in your dedicated tracking system. But we can see that that aircraft has departed before the new aircraft arrives. So there's benefits in traffic handling at the rig as well, if there's more than one operator assigned to be able to land aircraft at that rig. What's the, the display output then? On the rig, is there an operations room and there's a screen there? You just got this program running. I guess it's, it's digital, so I guess you could pipe it to any screen in the world. But is that the idea? You then have maybe an operations room for the helicopter company back somewhere and, and they can talk to the pilots if they're in the wrong spot. What's the, the interface then for people to, to see that information? The interface uh, for LASSOR is a web-based application. So it can be available anywhere that there is an internet connection. So the rig itself can have a control room and an operator that might be um, monitoring other systems within the rig, but also can see the air traffic environment. We also recommend that the aircraft operator that's assigned for uh, services to that platform be given access to the service as well so they can determine their aircraft and other aircraft that might be around that area. Because a lot of the operations um, platforms that most operators have are looking uh, extensively at their own fleet and possibly not seeing all the other traffic as well. And that's the great advantage with the remote area ADSB services that we provide is that we're providing the traffic around all these structures and particularly if there's bad weather, understanding that you can tell your crew that there's other aircraft in a particular area to maybe make contact with or ensure that they're departed a particular rig before they arrive. So there's a lot of um, capability for both the air operator as well as the rig uh, console uh, operations. And to be able to also look at an autonomous service, and this is really important, that should the communications with the rig go down in terms of no satellite communications back to base, no internet connectivity, the LASSOR device is capable of triggering up to four independent uh, outputs from that device. So you might have, for example, 
landing lights, strobe lights, bird scarers or any other system will still continue to operate independently whether there's an internet connection or not. The internet connection only will provide access to the mapping display and other alert functions, while the box itself on the platform will still be able to carry out its alert functions. So if you're a deck crew or some other person in and around the helipad on that operation, you'll still be able to get visual identification from the outputs from the device, regardless of what it's connected to. Is it the same information on the, on the reporting side? You know, say you've got a scheduled flight in at nine o'clock and, and say that you know, that's planned, but then you have someone who's supposed to be landing on, on the next rig over and they come in uh, later that day. Do you pre-program in the expected arrivals and it'll filter out what's expected or not? Or it's, it's there just to, it doesn't matter if it's you know, a planned flight or it's an unplanned flight, it'll still report the same information? It will still report the same information regardless of whether it's planned or not, and it's up to uh, operators to be aware. They can obviously use a trigger point in the application to say to ignore that aircraft because it's one they know of, if that's the, the right thing that they wish to do. The other point we have included in the system is a long-range arrivals and departures platform. So if there's any... Um, flight planning able to be done to a particular location, and this is probably more specific to airports than, than uh, rig operations, but we can actually provide flight plan information imported into the arrivals and departures section of LASOR to provide the long range capability. It could be from the US to the UK. It doesn't really matter. If there's a flight plan to that endpoint, we can access that flight planning information and present that as to what's expected to come in. And then once it becomes in range of the ADSB, we then start updating that position within one second intervals. Okay. Now, we focus a lot on, on the ORI, I guess, market. Is there, I don't know, is there, is there commonalities between hospital helipads or it's not really such an issue with those? Or is there other use cases? Absolutely. Um, the hospital helipad environment is something that is really interesting and uh, we sort of, I suppose, discovered this by accident by talking to people and, and understanding what their needs were. And the hospital helipad doesn't necessarily have very many people misidentifying the hospital, which is great, but they do have very limited information of who's coming and who's going. And so they can have crowded events at hospitals where multiple aircraft are arriving and they don't know. It's generally provided to them at very short notice. So we're working with um, some hospitals in the UK to provide a demonstration service of how LASOR can assist with them understanding the air traffic that's coming, who that aircraft is or who the operator is, and also whether they're able to handle more than one helicopter at a time at that specific site. And then later on, they're able to also analyse the data logs as to how long those helicopters were there on the helipad, who the operator was, so if they need to get in contact with them or, or for any billing information, uh, that's all available for them. So that's a new sort of uh, service that we didn't recognise that was of, of need, but it's certainly starting to show as a, um, uh, as a valuable service for, for hospitals. And so we're looking at other land uses as well, like major airports, for airport operators being able to understand what the traffic movements are and also what's on the ground and how long it's been there for. 
just as we've been talking, I wrote down wind farms on, on a piece of paper here to, to come back to later on. Oh, and again, it's just my unfamiliarity with the, with the industry when you're going out and, and hoisting people or landing on the backs of these, these huge wind turbines out in the ocean. But is, have you heard anything from, from those guys? Is there similar issues there? I would suspect that there are similar issues and, and a very high density, especially in wind farms. We haven't, um, we haven't made any approaches to those type of operators yet, so we don't fully understand the complexities of their operating environment as yet, but we can see that there would be uh, potential for use of a lasso-type system in that environment because wherever you're going to have remote operations in a clustered environment, um, some form of uh, advisory of traffic is, is going to be, I think, very important. Awesome, John. Okay, look, it's, it's just one of those things, and, and I told you earlier, but for other people listening, uh, I think you guys are one of the exhibitors coming up for, for Rototech. That's one of their, their mail out uh, sort of talk about it. Uh, and yeah, it's just you know one more thing out there that I wasn't wasn't aware of, and uh, especially you know in terms of the size of the, the Long Deck Landing uh, implications for, for folks. And and again, from a human factors point of view, it's just fascinating reading this report. Just how like everything you learn about CRM training and and, and human factors. Uh, you could tease apart different aspects of this wrong deck landing to, to, to work towards any aspect there. Uh, and then, yeah, more, again, one of the solutions they were looking at is, is technical solutions, and, and this is one of those solutions. So, um, John, thank you very much for, for sharing a little bit of info about it and uh, some of the background. Yeah, thanks, Mick. It's uh, it's a pleasure. And just for your listeners also to understand that, that Skynet Lassor is, is just one of a group of products that uh, Skynet Aviation provide. And if they'd like to have a look at all the other systems that we're involved with, simply just go to skynetaero.com and have a look at all the other Dave operations platforms and operation control centres and so forth, software solutions that we provide. And it's great that it's a, an Aussie company mixing it up with the uh, big organisations. Absolutely. And uh, you know we've had a lot of support from the Queensland government as well in um, helping us uh, develop a lot of this technology because at heart, Skynet Aviation is a software development organisation to bring some of these cutting-edge or bleeding-edge technologies to market. Thanks very much for your time there, John. Cheers. Thank you. I mentioned in the interview two reports of investigations conducted into wrong deck landings published in 2001 and 2016. If you want to read into this further, they are a great place to start. There are links to those on the blog post for this episode at rotarywingshow.com. Look for episode 98. There is additional information on the Lassor product there and links out to Skynet Aviation. We can find out more about the system that John was talking about and other offerings that they provide for fleet managers and operations staff. You can look through the complete back catalogue of episodes there on the website and take part in any of the comment sections. If you've got a hot tip or you want to get hold of me, then shoot me a mail at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Thanks again for your support and for taking the time to hang out here again. I hope you picked up something from John's discussion. If you'd like to help me out and be part of the support crew that chips in towards the bandwidth costs for your downloads of the episodes, please take a look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash sponsorship or search for the show on patreon.com. Stay safe, and I'll catch you in the next one.
This is the honor roll of supporters behind this episode. Thank you so much. Heath, AJ, Alidar, Brent, Gareth, Ian, Jason, Jeff, Michael, Chris, Peter, Rendell, Hal, Tony, Ben, John, Bill, Eric, Jake, Jason, Kevin, Kirillin, Mark, Michael, Mike, Shannon, and Stephen. <laughs>